The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In the last episode, the scouting expedition led by Captain Tor seizes the opportunity to enter the Goblin Outpost while most of its inhabitants are out on a raiding mission that might last several days. Eredin pulls off a successful backstab, allowing the party to gain entry to the caverns without raising any alarm. Exploration of the caverns takes the party to a room blocked by a makeshift wooden barrier. This room is one the Goblin they interrogated previously had mentioned specially. It had told Umura that none of the goblins were allowed inside. Surprisingly, it appears to contain only garbage. The mystery of the prohibition is solved in a most awful way when the party enters and two green slimes fall from the ceiling. One of them lands on the spearman, Mun, and the other on Gyrios. The party members are forced to remove them the only way they can, by fire. As the slimes are burned off, Mun and Gyrios are burned as well, but there's no choice. Tragically, Mun succumbs to the burning and dies along with the slime that attacked him. Gyrios, having just gained second level in the previous episode, survives the ordeal. When it's all over, the priest experiences his first real miracle, as most of his wounds heal through the magical power of his faith. Chapter 13, Part 1 Day 15. Late afternoon. Party status. Captain Tor. 14 of 17 hit points. Eiffelt. 5 of 5 hit points. Riley the Roach. 7 of 7 hit points. Thern. 19 of 19 hit points. Harl. 5 of 5 hit points. Kagan. 6 of 8 hit points. Umura. 10 out of 10 hit points. Gyrios, 11 out of 14 hit points. Eridine, 4 out of 4 hit points. Spells available. Umora has memorized Charm Person and Light. Gyrios has just had his faith and resolve tested in a most extreme way and has passed with flying colors. As a result, he has received his first miracle the spell, Cure Light Wounds. Normally, Gyrios would pray for and cast the spell of his own volition, but this first time it is bestowed directly upon him by his deity. 
When the burning was over, Gyrios had only five hit points remaining. The spell can heal two to seven points of damage when cast. Off mic, I rolled that he regained six hit points, taking him all the way back to 11. I mentioned it before, but it might be worth saying again that if Gyrios had not just gained second level, he would be lying dead beside Mun. So, is that just a coincidence? Well, we'll leave it to the priests and sages to debate. We actually have yet another level up to do before we get back to our adventure, because today it is Kagan's turn to advance to level 2. The first thing we need to do is double the fighter's hit points. This improvement brings him to a maximum of 16 points and a new current total of 14. That ought to help him stay alive a little bit longer, especially with the trials he's about to face. According to basic D&D rules, fighters do not get any improvement to their attack or damage rolls or anything like that for the first three levels. However, we still need to roll for ability score improvements. I'm using a homebrew system that says a six rolled on a die six means that the ability score rolled for goes up by one point. Let's get to it. We're rolling for strength first. A six here would take Kagan from a 13 to a 14. Here's Kagan's roll. A five. Close, but no cigar. Intelligence is next. Another five. The dice are teasing me. Wisdom is up. Two, no good. Dexterity's next. A six. Hey, I have to admit, this system is really fun. Perhaps Kagan has learned how to move in combat, having participated in so many fights recently. Anyway, Kagan will go from an 11 to a 12. Now, there's no bonus given with a 12, but it does take him a step closer. Constitution. Two. And finally, Charisma. A three. Okay, with our business finished, let's get back and see how our party is doing in the aftermath of the slime attack. Once they've determined that the immediate danger has passed, the party does a thorough examination of the rest of the ceiling making sure that there's nothing else waiting to drop from above. After, they put Mun's body into as close to a shape of repose as they can and use some of their water to clean him. Captain Tor does most of the work, but many others, especially Thurn and Kagan, and later Eifold, lend a hand. As they work, Thurn holds a whispered and very serious conversation with Tor. To Thurn, it's critical that the captain understands the burning was absolutely necessary, even if it cost the young spearman his life. The two women see Tegirios, who also needs a cleaning, but is otherwise in good shape, both physically and mentally. His armor and shield have both been completely ruined, however, and must be removed. Mun's armor is in even worse condition. Nothing can be salvaged for use. Gyrios's armor class will drop all the way back down to eight. If it were not for his dexterity bonus, it would be a rock bottom nine. Before long, Thurn and Harl decide, with Torl's approval, to go back down the tunnel, past the intersection, and watch for any enemies that might have been drawn by all the noise they had made. With their infravision, they did not need torchlight to see in the dark, so Harl hands his brand to Umora. Eridine and Riley keep watch at the entrance to the room, with arrows knocked and ready. Girio suggests that Mun's body is taken outside for burial while they still have daylight by which to dig and perform the ceremony. The last rites, as performed by a priest of Mazagar, are traditionally performed at sunset. Captain Tor agrees that they should bury Mun, but persuades Girios that now is not the right time to do it. 
they will press on and perform the burial and prayers later. Tor hopes otherwise, but thinks to himself that, with a warg and remaining goblins yet to face, Mun mightn't be the only one that will need to be put into the ground. Once Mun and Gyrios have been cleaned as much as possible, the two dwarves have left for the intersection, and Riley and Eridine have been stationed at the entrance, the rest of the party searches through the room. Anyone watching Eiffel would have seen that he had trouble concentrating. He wore a stricken look, and his eyes flicked nervously between Mun's body and the ceiling. While the others poked through bits of bone, sometimes picking them up and asking each other to identify the various animals to which they belonged, Umura made a beeline to the item she had seen earlier. Against all reasonable hope, the thing turned out to be exactly what she had dared to believe. Under a pile of dirt and trash, filthy but otherwise seeming whole, she clearly saw the edge of her book of spells. I don't believe it. She grabbed it and tears fell down her face cutting twin tracks through the layer of soot that covered her skin. She wasn't even aware that she was crying. She hugged the book tightly, pressing her chin over the top edge as she did so. How, she wondered, had the book survived? It was clear why it was here. This place had been used as the goblin's garbage room, and what could be less useful to goblins than a book? Anything organic could be disposed of here while making the slimes grow bigger and acting as a kind of security feature a natural trap against intruders. Thinking of Mun and Gyrios, the trap had been very effective. Umura's spellbook was the only organic thing in the room that had not been consumed by the slimes. Perhaps the magic in it offered some protection against the creature's acid, or perhaps the slimes merely sensed its arcane power and avoided it. Umura released the book from her embrace and flipped through the first few pages. The first page, it had the wyvern seal of her house done as a woodprint had been torn out. Everything else was undisturbed. Several pages of notes and studies, and then, there it was, her first spell. She'd spent her whole young life learning it, and a full year transcribing it onto this page. The rest of the book was, of course, blank. She closed the tome and put it in her shoulder bag. She noticed that Gyrios was looking right at her with one eyebrow raised. She nodded, and he offered her a small smile. Just then, the dwarves returned, pushing a goblin in front of them. Harl had one of its arms twisted behind it and held the goblin's dagger to its throat with his free hand. It resisted wildly at the threshold to the room, but Harl wrenched its arm further, and it cried out and stumbled forward. Found this sneaky beggar trying to creep up on you, said Thern. Looks like they know we're here. After it was established that the goblin did not speak the common tongue, a long conversation followed concerning what they should do with their captive and what they should do next in general. Harl wanted to kill the goblin, arguing that one less to fight was one less to fight. Tor thought Umura might interrogate this one as he had the others. Kagan suggested that the goblin be used as a hostage. Perhaps they could do some kind of prisoner exchange. Umura was quiet while the men debated these options, but eventually she offered something different for the party's consideration. Your ideas are all good ones, she began. But I do not see how, with any of these plans, how we will avoid walking into an ambush, even with your plan, Kagan, for it seems to me that the goblins do not much value the lives of their brethren, except insofar as their numbers make them stronger. Kagan, who had indeed been about to protest, found he suddenly lacked resolve, and so merely said, Well then, what do you suggest? We have to do something. 
It's not going to be possible to sneak up on them. Certainly not, no. They know we're here, and they know that we're coming. But they do not know who or what is coming. And that could be played to our advantage. You have a plan, then? asked Kagan. I have an idea, yes. I'm not sure it will work, and it's risky. But if it's even momentarily successful, it will allow us to avoid an ambush and fight on even terms. Go on, said Thern. We're listening. Well, Sheris, do you still have that silver candelabra? Welcome to DiceGeeks.com Tabletop RPG Show. Level up your RPG campaigns by filling yourself with stories and knowledge. Explore topics from archaeology to film history to writing to literature and much, much more. This is DiceGeeks.com Tabletop RPG Show. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 13, Part 2, Day 11, Morning Marlock sat down at his table and sent his page for paper, quill, and ink. Through the window in the next room, he could hear the rhythmic sound of his men going through their morning training routines, punctuated by a distant muffled ping from the town smithy. He thought of Tor, Eifold, Munn, and Riley. He wondered how they fared. Normally, he would not be especially concerned. Tor was a good captain, and a prudent one. He would not risk the lives of his men. But something about the strangers had troubled him. Specifically, there was something about the young girl which had struck him as false. He was pleased to have finally found a lead towards solving the growing problem with the Goblin Raiders, a problem that was beginning to strain the delicate relationship he was fostering with the dwarves of the High Forge. Yet, he could not shake a nagging doubt well, he had decided to sleep on it. When he woke up, as was his habit, he took a morning run. He found that the exercise was equally good for his body and mind. He never thought so clearly as he did when he could be alone this way with his thoughts and his breathing. It was on today's morning run that he remembered a name. It was part of a list of names of criminals wanted near the town of Brennan. Well, Brennan was not so close to Burke, but it was not so far either close enough that he'd been supplied with a warning at any rate. When his run was finished, he returned to his quarters and found the list. He read through it. The only name he really knew from it was that of Matty Swin, an infamous extortionist, robber, and murderer who had eluded authorities for years. But the name he remembered did not match the name the woman had given him. The name on his list said simply, Eridine of Rayford. The young woman he had just met introduced herself, wait, no, she had been introduced as Sheris of Zacia. A patter of feet signaled the return of the page. Good lad, wait here. I'll need you to run this to the rookery in a few minutes. Yes, my lord, said the page, and stood to the side to wait. Sheriff Marlock dipped his quill and blotted it before beginning to write. To Fenwick Modrin, the Lord Sentinel of Wolf Cliff Keep, Sire, 
It has been brought to my attention that one or several wanted criminals have entered the township of Burke, which continues to fall under my stewardship. At your discretion, please send one of your men to investigate further, or if you cannot spare the man, a physical description to match the names at the end of this correspondence. I have reason to believe the suspects will remain in Burke for a time, and so haste is not required. However, I would urge you to... Chapter 13, Part 3, Day 15, Early Evening, Party Status, Captain Tor, 14 of 17 hit points, Eiffeled, 5 of 5 hit points, Riley the Roach, 7 of 7 hit points, Thern, 19 of 19 hit points, Harl, 5 out of 5 hit points, Kagan, 14 out of 16 hit points. Umura, 10 out of 10 hit points. Gyrios, 11 out of 14 hit points. Eridine, 4 out of 4 hit points. Spells available. Umura has memorized Charm Person. Per the goblin's instructions, the party followed the tunnel out of the slime room and turned right at the T. Shortly thereafter, they entered a roughly box-shaped, large, natural cavern of at least 100 feet across. As soon as they entered, a swarm of bats exploded from the ceiling, shrieking in protest. They flapped about noisily in a black swirl before settling back into their crannies among the stalactites. They chittered as the party passed under them and across the cavern. To Umura, it sounded as if they were laughing at her, and, given the madness of what she was about to try, perhaps they were. Just past the large cavern, there was another room, really just a natural pocket. It was being used as a kind of storage space for the goblins' plundered items. The party ignored this for now and followed the wall to their left, as it first curved and then straightened. The party members walked mostly two abreast, although Umura was alone in the front. Behind her came Eiffeld with torch in hand and Kagan, then Riley and Eridine with their bows followed by Gyrios, holding a second torch, and Tor, finally, the two dwarves, in the rear. Umura tried to remain calm, but she could feel her heart beating in her throat. If she was wrong about this, or if she made a mistake, if she said just one wrong word, or even just hesitated at the wrong time, people could die. She tried to steady her breathing, in and out in and out. She had proven herself to be weak-minded when she had allowed the wizard to charm her back at the ruined tower. She had failed Gyrios by being unable to help him get free of the slime. She absolutely would not fail in this. She would sooner die right here in this cavern. There was no turning back now. Ten more steps and they would be there. Five more. Two more. The cavern was another large one. Umura could not see the back wall, as the light from Eiffel's torch could not penetrate that far into the darkness. But what she did see frightened her to the core. 
Despite having seen the headless body in the forest, she still found it hard to accept that this creature really existed as it rose to its full height in front of her. The warg had filthy matted fur of black and gray. A hump on its back made the creature stand over five feet tall. Its head was slung low. It was snub-faced with black lips peeled back over purple gums to expose fangs each at least the length of a finger. A low rumbling growl came from the direwolf's throat as it surged toward them, barking. The large goblin standing beside it yanked back on a chain leash and the warg halted, although it continued to growl. Umura could not believe she had faced that and stood her ground. Every cell in her body screamed at her to drop everything and run. She had never felt so much like prey in her life. The warg, it looked like violence incarnate. She found that she was unable to speak, but it didn't matter. The large goblin holding the chain smiled an ugly smile and laughed. <laughs> at its feet with the gifts they had sent along with the goblin they had captured and then released. The silver candelabra and the two bottles of Zacian wine had apparently been accepted. Along with the gifts were a number of clay pots, jugs, and bowls, and a few well-gnawed bones. You, said the goblin, pointing a bony finger at her and speaking the language of men. Are the witch of Zacia? It lowered its hand and touched the handle of a wicked-looking flail that hung from its belt by a cord. Umura was still unable to speak. Her courage had failed her. Her heart hammered in her chest. She swallowed hard. The goblin's nasty smile began to drop. The warg growled louder. Umura felt Kagan give her elbow a light squeeze. She knew it was his way of saying that he was right behind her, and she realized that her plan had already worked. They had not walked into a trap, and the goblins had forfeited whatever advantage they could have taken by preparing an ambush. It gave her the smallest boost of confidence. It was enough to break her out of her stasis. She looked down her nose at the big goblin directly into its red eyes. Yes, and you are Vashuk. Do my gifts please you? She replied using the goblin tongue. The warg took another step forward and Vashuk gave a sharp tug on the chain leash without breaking eye contact. You know my servant, the man with the bald head and fine clothes, said Umura. Bashuk looked uncertain. Your servant, he echoed. The tone was doubtful. Umura opened her bag and pulled forth an item she had prepared in the hope that it would make up for her lack of disguise and confidence. It was wrapped in Tor's cloak and took a moment to free. But once she held it in her hands, the overall effect was impressive. Umura held a glowing white skull, perfectly smooth and flawless. A light shone from within it, giving the skull's surface an almost liquid pearlescence. I am the bearer of the skull of Hiron Anuxun. She hoped that if she said it the right way, further explanation would seem completely unnecessary. She held it aloft for Vashuk to see. Soft light filled the room, and the circle of visibility expanded to include six other figures. To the left and back near the wall, two goblin archers squinted against the light of the skull, even though it was not especially bright. 
somewhat awed by the presence of what seemed to be a powerful artifact, they relaxed their bowstrings and pointed their arrows toward the cavern floor. One of the two archers was the goblin they had sent back with the gifts to announce the arrival of the made-up Grey Witch of Zaysha. To the party's right, standing behind a wooden table and in front of a mound of dirt the goblins probably used as a bed, two more of the creatures stood. Each held a prisoner. One was a human female, and the other a male dwarf, as they had expected. Both were gagged. The woman's hands were bound behind her. The dwarf had his hands free, but one of them was pinned down on the table, while his captor hovered a wicked-looking cleaver over his wrist. The light had unsettled these goblins as well, and they looked nervously between the intruders and their leader. If that dwarf loses its hand, said Umura, trying to sound imperious in the goblin tongue, I will not buy it. This succeeded in bringing the attention back to Vashuk. Clearly impressed and threatened by the skull, Vashuk was not used to bowing to any authority, especially not recently, and especially not to a woman. He sniffed the air and looked past her, raising his lip on one side in a sneer. You walk with dwarves, he said, this time in his own tongue. The other four goblins in the room hissed disapproval. They are obedient and stupid, replied Umura with a shrug, and they can fight. I have come here to buy that one, she said, inclining her head toward the captive. If there was any recognition between the captive dwarf and the dwarves in her party, they did not show it. Both prisoners were wild-eyed and shaking, emaciated, and, judging by the numerous cuts, bruises, and burns, had suffered torture. Much of the dwarf's beard and the woman's hair seemed to have been pulled out or burned off. The gifts are yours, no matter if we can find a price for the slaves or not, Umura continued. This was it. If she could pull this off, they would have a distinct advantage and could possibly avoid combat altogether. But, Vashuk, I can offer you something much better than silver and wine. Is that so? said Vashuk slowly. He fingered the chain leash in his hand, and the warg began to make its low growling sound again. Drool had begun to drip from between its fangs. I can make you strong with this, said Umura, raising the skull. You will be stronger, faster. Vashuk continued to glower at her. His face was an inscrutable mask. Umura had no idea if he was considering her offer or if he even understood it. I will make you strong, she repeated. Strong with magic. You will be greater even than your chief. Would you like that, Vashuk? Umura hoped she hadn't pushed it too far. If you give me both slaves, I can make of you a goblin hero like there has never been before. Vashuk continued to say nothing. He bent forward and picked one of the clay pots up off the floor. He considered it briefly and then looked back at Umura. He stared at her for what seemed like a long time. Over to the left, the goblin archers were slowly pulling back on their bowstrings again, although they did not point the arrows at the party yet. Step forward, Grey Witch of Zesha. Umura did as he asked. Even in the glow of the skull, Vashuk's eyes continued to burn red. She felt them rake her up and down. 
Behind her, the rest of the party inched forward, hands slowly moving towards weapons. Every single one of them could sense that these next few seconds were critical. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy what you've heard and would like to support the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. It helps a great deal. Also, feel free to drop me a line at taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Special thanks this episode goes to Jake Hendricks for contributing the voice of Thern. Thanks so much, Jake. Your participation makes the show so much better. For show notes, more behind-the-scenes info, rants, and random thoughts, please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Our story continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore. The story where chaos rolls. Hello, listeners. My name is Austin Moraga, host of the Ironbound Chest, a new interview podcast that focuses on discussing monthly topics relating to D&D and TTRPGs. Each week, I aim to bring on someone from around the community. Podcasters, streamers, world builders, writers, dice makers, map makers, mini painters, homebrewers, cosplayers, singers, artists, illustrators, crafters, collectors, creators, and listeners. The chest is slowly but surely being filled with amazing and wonderful things, and I invite you all to help me in this task. You can find me on Spotify and almost wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for The Ironbound Chest. You can even find me on Twitter and Facebook. So I hope you take the time to listen and to help me add some wealth to The Ironbound Chest.